I believe you have a, 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 a post or a blog or, a, or a, something or other that talks about trees and about moorland. And... That's, that's close enough, yeah. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Tree the Crowd. Part inspired by my last guest, Dara McAnulty's favourite bird, the Hen Harrier, and in part inspired by Dr Cat Barlow of the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project, see Season 2, Episode 2, this bonus episode is a double-pronged conservation-focused episode, taking a look at the hopes of Kevin Cumming and the Langham Moor Initiative, and the endeavours of Mark Avery and his wild justice. So, where to begin? The Langham Initiative is crowdfunding to buy an area of moorland, just north of Gretna Green, just north of the England-Scotland border. This is a community-driven direct climate action which incorporates peatland restoration, ancient woodland preservation, the increase of wildlife diversity, all in the hopes of founding the Taras Valley Nature Reserve. You'll hear from Kevin Cumming, the Langham Initiative's project leader, in about 10 minutes or so, but we'll kick off this episode by speaking with Langham local Gavin Graham. Right at the end of this podcast, there's a corker of fact about birds, so it's worth sticking around for that even if you think wildlife conservation is a waste of time. But if you think that, I'm not entirely sure why you're here, and I'm pretty certain that we can't be friends anymore. Anyway, this is Tree to Crowd, and these are the hopes and dreams of Langham Moor. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh Between 12 and 15 years ago, I, I started off It was at the time when the Langham Moor Demonstration Project had been set up to, to encourage or to help to try and return the moor to being a grouse moor, but also to do something to protect the hen harriers. And uh, I was a director of Langham Initiative then, and we were approached by SNH, Scottish Natural Heritage. They had money available to spend on areas that had, were triple SIs, and uh, could we think of a project to use some of that money? So we, we set up what we called the Langham Moor, Moorland Education Project. We wanted to educate local people and youngsters in particular about the moorland and how the actual way that they were, they were doing things would help lots of ground nesting birds and it would help wildlife. And then that developed a few years later into another project where we got more money called Making the Most of the Moorland. Then the money ran out for that, and then a couple of years after that, we developed Wild Estill. That was about three years ago we, we started the project for Wild Estill, and we advertised for a, a Moorland project manager, Wild Estill project manager, and Kevin was one of the applicants that I was on a panel of, to interview. And the minute he walked into the room, there was no doubt about who we were going to choose for <laughs> it. He's just such a personality, and... His knowledge of everything is just fantastic. So I guess that, that's my main question is, what's your hope for the buyout? What do you think will change if you're successful to raise the funds and be able to buy it well, for first the community? Well, first of all, you have to realise that Langham was a textile town. I started my working life when I left school in 1963 and spent 20-odd years in the textile industry, working in 
and the offices in textile, two textile companies I worked for. Mm -hmm. But Langham had full employment. There was a town of two and a half thousand people and there was over probably between 1,200 and 1,500 jobs in textiles in the town. And also the factory Border Fine Arts was here and the setup of Edinburgh Woolen Mill. Sure. So it was a really, really prosperous town and we didn't need tourists. You know, it was that there was no unemployment. It was prosperous. Uh -huh. All those jobs have gone. Yeah. And I, I have a vision that, that, you know, the one thing that can't get manufactured in China and places like that is the scenery. We're in the center of a beautiful area. All these river valleys, moorland. It is an absolutely super area. And the wildlife in the area is, is tremendous. The Taras Valley that they hope to turn into a nature reserve has been a special place that only locals knew about for many years. Mm -hmm. And it really is an unspoiled area. And probably that whole area of the Langham Moor is the best place in the UK mainland to look at to watch raptors. And, of course, the Hen Harrier. I mean, I was up on the moor the other morning, Monday morning, and I think in the space of an hour I would see five Hen Harriers. Amazing. Plus a Merlin, plus a short-eared owl. And that was sitting next to the road in, a, in a, a, an easy place to watch them from. Do you worry about an influx of tourists? Is that a concern? We've always been... I mean, I always think that Dumfries and Galloway is the forgotten corner of Scotland. <laughs> You're not the first person to tell me that, Patrick Laurie. But, but Langham is... Langham is the forgotten corner of Dumfries and Galloway. We don't really feel being Dumfries and Galloway people. We feel more like borderers. Sure. All our history with things like common ridings and rugby. I mean, Langham, you know, as a, we, you would class us as a village. Mm -hmm. there, there are plenty of villages in England that are bigger than us. So we call ourselves a town and we're very proud of the fact that we're a town. But really, by all means and purposes, we're a village. But yet, in 1958-59, Langham rugby team was the Scottish champions. Okay. Which was unbelievable. You know, we've, we've provided eight Scottish internationalists. My classmate, Billy Steele, played for the Lions and uh, for Scotland 20-odd times. And, of course, he was the man that, that introduced Flower of Scotland to, to eventually become the national anthem of Scotland. No, I didn't know that. So we had a huge rugby history. Great rugby history, but that was a Borders thing, not a Dumfries and Galloway mm -hmm. thing. So we've always been in the eastern part of Dumfries and Galloway. Everything that's promoted in Dumfries and Galloway, and I found this particularly that happened when, when I was involved with setting up walks and everything, everything is geared towards the A75, which goes from Gretna right through to Stranraer. I know the road, yeah. And it's all promoted there as being uh, Dumfries and Galloway, but there was many a time there would be books of maps produced or walks produced that said Dumfries and Galloway walks, but there was nothing east of Dumfries. As far as, you know, Langham was concerned, it, w it wasn't part of Dumfries and Galloway. It was just, you know, that place that most people had never been to. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, we need tourism. The only way that the town will survive in the future is through tourism. Now, quite a lot of the locals are probably not too happy about that because they like it the way it's it's I been, as they say. It's always been that way. Sure. But I think, I mean, what I would like to see here is we, you know, I would like to see quality tourism. 
Uh, I mean, I've travelled extensively all over the world and I've, I've been many times to the States. I've seen the national parks in America. My son lived in Utah for 10 years uh, where he worked for Microsoft and then Disney. Uh-huh. And now he works for Apple in California. And I've seen all the national parks. They are absolutely su- superb. Yeah. Well-managed, well-organised. And I have a and vision And they keep people away, area. in a sense. They, keep, they, make, they make sure the natural parks are there for the natural world as opposed, for, uh, opposed for, uh, to the people and the, the access of it. That's but, right, yes. They're well-managed, they're super. And I think this Talis Valley, properly organised, and there is nobody better that could do it than, than Kevin. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you know Kevin's background, but he used mm-hmm. to be a professional footballer with Dundee. <laughs> So, and then he went back to university and he, he, he's managed a small estate sure. and his real interests are with, with wildlife. So he's, he's very, very qualified to do what he's doing. But I really do think this area, I mean, you, you will, once you see it, you'll, you'll never forget it. It is almost unspoiled and yet it's off the, it's, it's off the tourist beat. But within an hour and a half drive of us, there are millions of people. So the potential is huge. If you want to see raptors, you don't have to go to the highlands or the islands. The islands is my, my particular favourite. I'm trying to walk on every inhabited Scottish island. You said you've got 24 more to go, is that right? I've 24. The trouble is these 24 are the ones that are not easy to get to, you know. But going back to this, I don't worry too much about, about numbers of people because we're not looking for tourists that want to sit on beaches or things like that. Yeah. We're looking for people that are interested in the area and interested in the wildlife. And who will respect the area and respect the And wildlife. who will respect the area. But the beauty of this scheme is if we can raise the money, it will be self-financing right from the very start. And part of the, the, the spec and, and the, the I, I take it you've studied Kevin's uh, paper on it. I have indeed. Well, I mean, he, he wants to see a, a, like a visitor centre, an outdoor centre, way up in, in the Taras Valley, which is the, the area that would, would become the nature reserve. There is an old farmhouse, actually, that was destroyed by fire a few years ago. But it would be an ideal place for an education centre or a bunkhouse mm-hmm. for school parties to come. That, that river is just spectacular. One of the favourite images I think I've seen on Kevin's um, portfolio is the picture of a whole load of people wild swimming, like yes. in the middle of the Scottish uh, countryside going through. And with... it's, it's absolutely unspoilt. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, there is one farm, so, I mean, there is not, there's no, not loads of fertilisers going into the river and things like that. I remember in the early days of the Langham Moor Education Project, we were in the running for an award, which actually we won. Mm-hmm. And David Bellamy came over here to give us some advice and to help us. And him and I were walking in the Taras Valley. And it was early in the morning, probably before 8 o'clock. And it was a beautiful June summer morning. And he said he'd never seen anywhere. So, and it, there was, it was almost as if we'd controlled them like puppets. <laughs> there, was, there was kestrels, there was... Uh, hen harriers, there was everything. And it was just a marvellous experience. And he was totally blown away with it. Oh, fantastic. So it is, and of course we have the wild goats as well. Mm-hmm. I know so that's I, I, the change that I envisage and the change that I would like would be of high quality, classy, well-designed and well-landscaped and fitting in with the rural amenities. 
Well, I think that's what people want, and I think that's what people will probably need as a result of this current uh, crisis. Yes. So when when this is over, and it's going to be a few years before it is over, I think. Mm-hmm. First of all, I don't know how many airlines will be left. I don't know how many travel companies will be left. But the day of cheap airfare is over. And therefore, that staycation is going to be the only way people, a lot of people will get holidays. But I think it's something that we want to encourage and take advantage of. But it has to be quality. Definitely. I couldn't agree with you more. Gavin, that's perfect. I've got everything I need from you. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye-bye. My name's Kevin Cumming. I'm a project manager at the Langham Initiative, which is a charity based in the town of Langham uh, in Dumfries and Galloway in the Scottish borders. And, and I'm currently speaking to you from uh, my bedroom in my house just outside <laughs> of Langham. Uh, with my my wife and my seven year old in the next room, uh, seven month old in the next room. So yeah, try, trying to make sure we're not too loud on that side as well. I've got a dog running around in the background here, so hopefully she won't be too noisy either. <laughs> it's that hysterical thing when we're trying to sort of run professional outfits from bedrooms. <laughs> Suddenly you're sort of <laughs> interviewed by a whole host of noises. I was doing a voiceover this morning and um, I was worried that the uh, people in the flat above were going to put a wash on because you'd hear the washing machine going <laughs> on. Anyway, um, one of the things I was looking at before we get onto the Langham uh, community buyout, I discovered that you used to be a display falconer at somewhere called Raptor World in Fife. I did indeed, yeah. So um, the Raptor World is, is in fact, part of it. It's a separate company, but it, it exists inside the Scottish Deer Centre, just outside Cooper okay. in Fife. Um, and, and that's where, in terms of my sort of work with, with nature, I guess, and, and animals, um, I started as a volunteer at the Scottish Deer Centre. Um, and then after university, ended up uh, going back to Raptor World and, and taking on a, a, a job as a, a display falconer there. Uh, so yeah, learning to handle and, and and fly birds of prey for yeah educational purposes. Was it birds uh, that got you excited about nature in the first place? I would say overall, mainly predators. I find predators a really fascinating subject anyway. Um, probably wolves were my my sort of initial thing that drew me towards towards wildlife sure. um and then going and working with the birds of prey in particular uh really sort of captivated me and there's i always remember something that that happened when i was doing um sort of private handling sessions with with people who would bring their children and um you know one, one of the bigger birds who would fly with a, a, a young a younger child would be something like a european eagle owl you know which is a big bird yeah you know, you would sometimes get children who would come who maybe wasn't quite their thing, and their parents had brought them, and you would fly fly a couple of birds with them, and then you would use you'd use the eagle level at the end, and 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 it would fly towards them with its wings out and land on their arm, and the look on their face was just incredible, hmm. and you, you thought, well, maybe that child's now grown up with with a respect for for that animal, or or maybe an interest it didn't have the person didn't have before, and they'll grow up with that, and that was that. That kind of really that stuck with me throughout the rest of my sort of working life so far. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a really sort of rewarding experience to do that. Is that part of what you're hoping to do with Langham? Is to make it a community? Well, I mean, it's it's community buyout. Is it? But is it going to be about trying to get people in? Is it primarily an education exercise? Is it? What, what's... Well, I think one of one of the really exciting things about this project is 
if, if you were to keep going about your your long your train of thought there about what is the project, and you mentioned a whole host of things, the answer is yes. It's it's all of these things and more. It looks, it's going to look at education. It has the potential to provide um, community regeneration. There's climate action to be done on it. There's ecological restoration, and that's what I think has attracted so many people to be in support of it so far. So, what is Langham Moor? What what was and who owned Langham Moor? And why is it up for sale now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Langham Moor is um, seems to be an area that has has a lot of interest and, and has a lot of history. In the last couple of years, the conclusion of the Langham Moor demonstration project happened, which looked at uh, re-establishing a, a driven grouse moor on on the land here, um, but also investigating how that can be done while also protecting the birds of prey that might be on there. And, and I wasn't directly involved with that project, um, but it re- released its, its final report a couple of years ago um, with you know many different findings and, and many different opinions on those. Uh, but one of the, the key findings being it appears that driven grouse shooting is no longer economically viable on this bit of land for a number of different reasons. And the current owners who are Buku Estates last year, around about May time, announced that they would be selling you know, selling the land off. And then members of the community decided to to approach the Langham Initiative and ask if there was anything we could do about mm-hmm. that. I also have a, a background in rural estate management. Uh, that's what I was doing before I came here. I ran a, a rural estate in Northumberland. Uh-huh. And, and yeah, they came and asked if we would do something. So we started investigating what options the community would have. And, and a community buyout was one of those. And yeah, we just, we, we started to try and demonstrate there would be community support for that. Um, so we, we went to the clue and we said, if you give us, well, we agreed to have um, 14 days in which we could demonstrate significant community support to investigate purchasing you know, at least some of the land. Sure. Um, and in, in 10 days, there was over 800 people had signed the petition locally. Um, and we'd had a number of the organisations locally write letters of support. And then nationally, a number of organisations landed support, people like the RSPB, uh, Borders Forest Trust. And the John Muir Trust, these sort of organisations, all, all sorts. And John Muir have been things. kind enough to kick off the fundraising as well. I think they started with, uh, was £100,000? Yeah, they've been just incredibly supportive. Um, the Langham Initiative have delivered uh, John Muir awards for the last few years. Um, so that's you know getting people out into nature and getting them to discover it and explore it uh, and conserve it in, in whichever way they can. Um, so we've been delivering those. Um, and we you know we, we spoke with, with them and sort of the plans here. Uh, and you know, there's no real higher compliment. I don't think somebody going to go, here's an investment of this scale uh, towards your plans, and 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 we wish you the best of luck, sort sure. of thing. You know, we can't we can't ask for friends enough. So obviously, you're trying to buy the land for for the community by the community in order to sort of keep the peatlands safe, keep the forestry growing, the animal, the biodiversity, the, uh, to get people into it. It's education, it's environmental. If they if they don't think that it's viable for grouse shooting now and you guys can't raise the money to buy it from them, what will happen to it? Will it just be left to be wild? It won't be profitable for them to manage in the way they were. So what happens to it if you can't buy it? Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a, valid, a, a great question to ask. And, and you know, it's it's difficult to, to speculate exactly what who may or may not come, come and take it uh, or purchase it or not. Um, but the area of land 
has a sort of a double-edged sword to it, almost of it being designated as a triple SI, you know, site of special scientific interest, as well as a special protection area. Mm-hmm. And those designations do offer some protection, but they also offer restrictions as well. And certainly a fear locally that was expressed to us was increased conifer plantation surrounding the, the, those designated areas um, and surrounding the town. Um, and also the potential for uh, any sort of large wind farm development on it as well. Uh, both of those uh, industries are very prevalent in the Scottish borders. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, although they do have a very important role to play in both our fight against climate change and in terms of the Scottish economy, you know, sometimes the communities that are most affected by it are, can be forgotten in the development of them. I think also when it comes to mass forestry, and uh, wind turbines, they can often have a detrimental effect upon the the environmental causes, uh, environmental inhabitants. So biodiversity shrinks with a monoculture of, of purely one kind of tree. Yeah. And again, if you put in a huge um, technological infrastructure, that's going to have an effect on, on the wildlife too. Absolutely. And, and as we're saying, we're not, we're not um, saying that we're opposed to any of these sort of developments at all, but it is about having the developments in the right place um, at the right time and choosing the right thing to do. Um, and you know this this particular area of land, if you're to put commercial plantation right round it, the the increased predation on the ground nesting birds in that area is going to be pretty severe. So these are the sort of things that that we would hope to avoid through community ownership and look at what other options there could be for that. Was the community that you're talking of were they linked to the hunt in any way, or was it always private? I mean, there's a lot of talk about grouse shooting and hunting in general being a community countryside sport. I mean, some people would argue that moving away from that is also detrimental to a community spirit. Um, well, I think it's important to, to point out on on that bit of land that it hasn't been shot for grouse for a long time. Okay. And yeah, we, we know there is there is widespread support for the community about through the throughout the community, but it is important to also acknowledge that there are people like with you as you've mentioned with that um, maybe more traditional might be a way of putting it um, background to who it, it may be that it isn't particularly their their type of project, but Langham as a whole also needs a new industry to take it forward, and that's where the community regeneration element of this project comes in as well. Um, and the community have been consulted um, a number of times over the past few years about what direction it thinks the town should go in. And on top, what always comes out on top is tourism and, and making use of its natural assets, which is its setting and its wildlife and its landscape. So what, give me a few examples of the wildlife that you have there on Langanmore. You know, the one that I've, since I've certainly come here as well that I've um, fallen in love with, I would say, is, is, um, is the hen harriers that are here. You know, there's a, a good stronghold for hen harriers here. They're, they're, very, they're very accessible here. You know, there's the, a lot of people can come and see them and, and do come and see them. And, you know, I'd, I'd not really lived in many places where, where head harriers were prevalent. And coming here and being able to go and, go and see them is, is a privilege. And, and to be able to potentially have the option to, to help protect them is, is something that we take very seriously as part of the project. So they're a huge draw. But on top of that, there's short-eared owls here. There's Merlin. You know, there's stone chat and wind chat and snow buntings through the river Taras or the Taras water. There's otters and, and dippers and grey wagtails and, you know, um, you get salmon in that river as well and, mm-hmm. and trout. So it's, yeah, there's there's a lot of, of interesting species here. Would there be, I mean, obviously it's a site of scientific interest, a special scientific interest at the moment. Um, would yeah. there be 
a hope at the future to get it protected in a greater sense, whether it be as an area of outstanding national beauty or as a national park, or would that be an end yeah. goal that you'd be interested in? It is. It's part of the, the plan that we've put forward is that there'll be the majority of the 10,500 acres that we're looking to purchase, the majority of that will become a nature reserve. Um, and over the sort of first five years, we're hoping to work with the National Nature Reserve Partnership to look at having it designated as a National Nature Reserve. And hopefully that will increase, you know, bring people to the area and, and they'll come in and want to stay. And you have people come and stay in the hotels in, in the town and maybe spend a bit longer than just a day. Uh, and hopefully that brings some, some benefit to the town as well. And as I understand it, it's going to cost just over £6 million to buy. So how are you getting along with hitting that target? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if we talk about on a on a global scale, um, COVID-19 has had an impact on people in, a, in a horrendous ways and devastating ways. And that, you know, that's been horrendous. If I was to then go into more specifics on how it's affected the project here, it's had it's had a huge effect on that. You know, we've, we've applied to the Scottish Land Fund, um, who uh, is a fund set up by the Scottish Government to help communities buy land, um, it could be land or buildings. So we've applied to them for £3 million. And really, we were kind of at the stage of beginning to start our fundraising in earnest, just as lockdown sort of hit. Um, and it becomes a lot harder to uh, not be able to have people come and visit the land here, not be able to sort of do this sort of promotional type things we would have done to kind of show off the land a bit more. Sure. And then perhaps some of the the individuals who had uh, express, expressed an interest in, in helping fund the purchase, you know, the finance for everybody becomes a little bit more difficult in this time. And, you know, that's that's the way it is. And we we can respect that. And really anybody that's, that's willing to help towards something like this uh, is quite humbling at this time. Um, you know, we have launched our crowdfunding appeal now on GoFundMe. You know, just before just before you can phone there, I was having a look, and you know, already nearly six hundred people have given twenty six thousand pounds. And that's been a couple um, of days now. That's not been a long time. That's, that's been running. No, it's only been going a couple of days, and and a lot of them are local, but a lot of them are not, and a lot of them don't know us, and a lot of them. Uh, you know, have just looked at what the project is and can see what its ambition is, uh, and that's attracted them to it, and and that's a, that's also quite a, a you know a humbling experience to have. Is this the largest community buyout there's ever been in Scotland? No, in the whole of Scotland, in the south of Scotland, there haven't been any large community buyouts, um, but there have been been larger ones in the, in the north where community buyouts are a bit more commonplace. Sure, but certainly in the south of Scotland, it hasn't gone the same way. Um, there hasn't been the same availability of land. So, yeah, that's one of the big impacts that this project can have is is that showing that it can be done in the south of Scotland and the impact that might have to other communities to, to want to do that. And what we hope is that the blueprint we're putting here, where we're talking about community regeneration, but we're talking about doing that where you put the environment at the heart of the decisions you make to make that happen. And we hope that that can also be something that other communities will take on. The idea of getting more countryside back into public hands, both in in Scotland and in England and Wales and the whole of the UK, if not the world, can only be a, a good thing. And I think at this current time, as well as you're saying that donations and support are meaning more because of COVID, again, people are getting back in touch to nature in a way that they perhaps weren't before COVID. So hopefully all of these things are sort of moving in a, in a good direction for environmental causes. 
but time will tell, I fear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, we we kind of live in a time where when you have an uh, an opinion on something, um, it's very it, it's thought of as being very rigid, and and we're very polarized in our opinions. If you think one thing, then you must think the opposite of something else. Mm-hmm. And again, this project is is something where we've kind of looked at. Well, does it have to be ecological restoration and no people? And or can it be community regeneration and the environment? Can it be development and conservation, um, rather than development at the sort of um, you know with a loss of conservation? Mm-hmm. When I was at, at university and I was I did a, a master's degree in conservation and management of protected areas, I remember sitting in a, a lecture and it was all development and conservation, and I ended up in quite a heated argument with the lecturer with everyone watching on. Because it's never sat well in my head that they are complete opposites, mm-hmm. and and that was what I was being told, and I just I just didn't understand how they could. Say. For me, it's that that development is done in spite of nature. Yeah. Whereas if we actually do development with nature as the foundation of the decisions, then perhaps because humans have to maintain on the planet, we have to be part of what we're doing. For us as a species to survive, the planet will survive. Mm-hmm. You know, but for us to continue, we have to find a way where we can continue to make it you know, habitable for us as well, as well as keeping biodiversity so that climate change doesn't end our time here, you know. Indeed. Fantastic. Kevin, thank you very much. Um we'll put a link up on the website to the to the crowdfunder and hopefully we can send a a few pounds, tens of pounds, maybe a few million pounds your way. No, well honestly I really appreciate you taking the time because I know you're busy and, and um that's really kind of you <laughs> not to, as busy to... as you might think. <laughs> no. It's always polite to say that to somebody though, isn't it? You don't want to assume that <laughs> if, if ever there was a time to assume that everyone's just sitting at home twiddling their thumbs. <laughs> he, hey, even our Prime Minister yeah. seems to not be that busy. Anyway, enough <laughs> of that. <laughs> so that's Kevin, Gavin and the Langham Moore buyout. It's worth reiterating here that Kevin has already managed to raise almost half the money required for the project from the Scottish Land Fund. But in order to secure that funding, the other half needs to be in place by October. So please, please, please head over to our website, treesacrowd.fm, or to theirs, langhaminitiative.org.uk, and you'll find more information on the project and on ways to donate anything you can. That said, we're not done quite yet. As a keen supporter of the initiative and as a guardian of much that is good with our wild world, I thought I would reach out to ecologist Mark Avery, previously of the RSPB, now of Wild Justice, to see why he thinks this project merits your support. My name's Mark Avery. I'm a writer. I write a blog. I'm one of the three co-founders of a new not-for-profit organization called Wild Justice, and I'm kind of a generalized troublemaker, I think. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, generalized troublemaker seems to be the best uh, occupation I could think anyone could have. <laughs> um, so, a first question first, let's kick off with, with Langham. What is it that uh, you were particularly interested by about the Langham Moor buyout and why you think it's such a good enterprise? Well, I've been to Langham. Uh, I've been there and it's a beautiful place. Uh, I've seen hen harriers there. I've seen other wildlife there. But it's quite a famous place in the recent history of debates about land use and I've been involved in debating 
the role of driven grouse shooting in land use, uh, I mean, I think we should get rid of it sure. uh, because I think it's unsustainable. It's dependent on illegal persecution of birds of prey because some birds of prey eat red grouse that people want to shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not great for the climate. It's not good for flood alleviation it's not good for water quality and therefore this project seems to be taking an intensively managed grouse moor and turning it into something that will be in my view far more valuable to society as a whole so i know some people would look at it as terrible and retrogressive and you know we ought to let the landowners get on with what they want to do Mm -hmm. i see it as being very progressive and i'd like to see this type of thing happen all over the place really and and i think it probably will so the eyes of the world will be on langham to see what sort of results it produces in future if we can all help this project to raise the money so that it goes ahead and i hope we can um, obviously, the, the moorland itself, they haven't been doing ground shooting there for the last few years. Was it somewhere that was particularly abused by wildlife crimes at the time? I mean, the hen harrier population, I think, is recovering slightly. I think there's something like 545 breeding pairs in the country at the moment. Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, that is in the UK. Mm-hmm. There ought to be, according to the science, about 2,600 pairs of hen harriers. So the difference between a bit under 500 and a bit over 2,500 is how much persecution there's going on. Sure. But Langham was important back in the 90s, and I was, uh, I was involved in this study long time ago when I was head of research at the RSBB, mm-hmm. um, there was a study set up at Langham. There have been two studies set up at Langham. So if this purchase goes ahead, that will kind of be the third one. So it's a pretty important place in terms of finding out about these issues. But the first study, the Duke of Buccleuch, that's the father of the current Duke of Buccleuch, agreed with mainly with game conservancy they were important in setting up this study uh to protect all the birds of prey at langham now one has to be a bit careful about what that actually means but it means that if there had been any illegal persecution of birds of prey going on in the past then the aim of the study was to make sure that all finished completely um and that's what happened. Um, so hen harrier numbers and peregrine numbers increased over uh, quite a lot, a lot more than we thought they would, over five or six years of the study, uh, which, of course, demonstrated that something must have been happening to them before the study started. Uh-huh. But they ate a lot of red grouse. Hen harriers eat a lot of red grouse chicks. And therefore... From the grouse moor manager's point of view, hen harriers are a pest because they'll eat the things that your either your mates or your paying clients want to shoot from the 12th of August onwards. Sure. So Langham both showed that there was pressure on birds of prey in this particular place because their numbers increased, but that if you let the numbers increase, then that makes... Uh, driven grouse shooting, it actually showed it made it 
unfeasible. I mean, how prevalent is the persecution of, of birds of prey? And is it being monitored and how are people trying to stop it if it is happening? Uh, well, it's certainly happening. As I, as I said, there ought to be 2,600 pairs of hen areas and there are only about 500 in the UK. That's a measure of it happening. There ought to be 300 pairs of hen areas in the north of England within sight of Langham Moor, many of them. And uh, the last few years, there have been about a dozen or so. So uh, we also know that peregrines are bumped off on grouse moors. Uh, red kites are poisoned buzzards uh, trapped and killed but this is all done under the radar as much as possible because it's criminal activity so it's not done in plain view but studies of long-term studies of birds of prey particularly in recent years studies using radio or satellite telemetry following birds around that have satellite tags that tell you where they are show that um, birds like hen harriers again, but it applies to golden eagles in Scotland too, Mm -hmm. they come to a sad and sticky end if they spend too much time on grouse moors, whereas they seem to do pretty well if they avoid grouse moors. (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, hopefully then you're getting something like Langham up and running to get sort of the tourist industry, the natural history tourism sector alive and well will hopefully replace the need to have the hunting industry bringing money into the countryside, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, and Langham is well-placed to attract visitors, and the geography of the place means that um, you could go and um, spend a morning looking at, looking for and looking at hen harriers and then um, go to lunch in one of the cafes in Langham itself, which... I've done on many times, on many occasions. There's quite a good cafe in Langham. Can't remember what its name is, but <laughs> I pop in there quite often. They do a good ham, egg, and chips. <laughs> and uh, more people going to look at hen harriers, short-eared owls, and things like that will mean that more people stay in Langham. They'll get B&B, they'll stay in the hotels, they'll drink pints of beer, they'll buy newspapers, they'll fill up with fuel and they'll go to the cafes. And uh, that would be good, I think. What are you and Wild Justice doing at the moment? What's your current objective? Is it just raising awareness or is there a particular project that you're focusing on trying to make people aware of? Wild Justice, which is just three mates, um, one of them's quite famous, this guy called Chris Packham, who's mm-hmm. on the telly quite a lot. Uh, and then there's me and Ruth Tingave. We are just three mates, really. But we had the idea of using the legal system to get a better deal for wildlife. So, you know, when I worked for the RSPB and I was conservation director there, we spent quite a lot of time trying to change the laws so that they are better for wildlife they give wildlife a better deal whether it's agriculture policy climate change policy development or actual wildlife policy but actually we've got quite a lot of laws that are there to protect wildlife but they're not always being enforced and implemented and so wild justice has taken three legal challenges against uh, government bodies Uh, Two of them, one against Natural England and the other against Natural Resources Wales, are about the operation of 
oh, something called the general licenses, which uh, allow you, under specific circumstances, to kill crows, jays, magpies, and a bunch of other things. Uh Well, we think the wrong species are on the list, and they're not that killing is not regulated well enough. And the second, uh, the middle case we've taken is challenging the unregulated release of uh, nearly 60 million non-native game birds into the countryside every year. Most of them are pheasants, mm-hmm. 47 million pheasants, 10 million red-legged partridges, without a single bit of assessment of the impacts of those birds on native flora or fauna. And Deferus have said, mm, yeah, we will have to look at this. So we're waiting I w- I to see what they come up with. I was absolutely stunned when I first discovered how many animals are introduced every single year just for the hunting industry. It's not like they're breeding naturally. It's like we're the, pumping the land full of creatures just for... Uh, the joy of going out and shooting them. It, it was perverse. The, the figures are just huge. Uh, they are huge. And if you add up the weight of all those pheasants in July, August, when they're released, they add up to the, more than the weight of all species of native birds in the UK put together. So the weight of birds in the UK in late summer, more than half of it, pheasants and red leg partridges and it's as an ecologist it's almost impossible to think that that doesn't have an impact mm-hmm. on quite a lot of things but we're kind of used to it because we see pheasants they're on um, pub signs and we see them on kind of fake old prints of people <laughs> shooting in the countryside sure. and we see them on menus and we see them as we drive around so we kind of think Oh, well, they've been here forever and it's always been like this. But there's something like 10 times as many released now as there were about 40 years ago. So this is something that has increased phenomenally during my lifetime and it's not regulated at all. So we ought to have a look at it. And there are reasons to think that there, um, there could be harmful impacts and they could be quite serious. So while justice is trying to make the powers that be look at that properly and we've had some success so far super well best of luck for the future and um hopefully we can meet up in person walking across langham moor uh keeping an eye open for hen areas yeah that'd be great that'd be great let's do that so that's that thank yous to kevin to gavin and to mark for their time tales and insights both Wild Justice and the Langham Moor Community Buyout rely upon financial support from people like you. One project aims to create wild spaces, the other seeks to preserve them, and they're doing that so that these wild places can be enjoyed again by people like you. Therefore, what better way to free yourself of any spare change you may have lying around? Full information on everything mentioned in today's episode, along with details on how to donate, can be found on our website, treesacrowd.fm. We're back again in a week with an episode all about wildflowers and wood meadows, but until then, keep safe and thank you very, very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the 